We're going to be reading in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. Well, by the way, this is the last day of Pastor Appreciation Month. Have you uh, appreciated your pastor this month? And the worship team and the direction that we've been going, I sure have, with uh, song selections and that was, that was a cue to give them a round of appreciation. We're truly blessed here. First Peter chapter two. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the God and the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, you, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we are truly thankful this morning for everything that you have done for us. Lord, that our hope is in you. Lord, that you walk with us through every storm that we face. Lord, I just want to take time this morning to lift up those people that are in the middle of a 
some type of storm, whether it be health or financial or relational. Lord, I just pray your Holy Spirit to come upon them and give them peace and hope and comfort. Lord, we just look to you this morning as we get into your word and again ask that you would uh, uh, give us a, a refreshing, a vision for what you would have us to do as we go out into this country of ours. Lord, I just pray for the anointing on your word as it goes forth from Jackie's mouth and into our ears that it will take root, Father, and give us a, a desire to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we ended uh, verse 9 and 10 by the declaration that we have a new identity, a new citizenship. In verse 9, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter, is, all those are quotes from the Old Testament. Every one of them is a quote to the nation of Israel when Israel was called. He goes on to quote from Hosea in verse 10. Once you were not a people, that was the name of one of Hosea's children, not mine. But God later changed their name. He said, you were not mine, but now you are God's people. Hosea's second son was called No Mercy. And now the Lord changes his name, but you have received mercy. When we look at the story of Hosea and God's redemption of, of men in, in that book, it, we uh, were blown away by God's willingness to chase that which was not wanting to have anything to do with her husband. Hosea is the prophet God called to marry a prostitute. And the prostitute ran away to go do her thing. Hosea named two kids, not mine, no mercy. Because God said there's judgment that's going to come because of those choices and decisions. And eventually down the end of that road, Gomer finds herself unwanted, thrown away, outcast. God says to Hosea, go get your wife back. So Hosea goes and he finds her and he pays half the price of a servant gored by an ox to buy her out of sexual slavery and then to restore her as his wife and to change the names of his children. You are mine and you will receive mercy. And all of that prophetically speaks to the nation of Israel being restored, but also to you and I. Why do I know that speaks to you and I? Because Peter quotes it to us. <laughs> he says, you are now a new people. I've said many times, one of the things I love about Celebrate Recovery is the choice on how you are identified. A lot of people are identified a lot of different ways. And I have in my past been around or associated with various biker clubs. And so they wear colors to say who they are, right? This is who I am. And that's who I am before I am anything else. I am this thing, whatever, whatever that would be. Celebrate recovery, we are identified in Christ. It's not about me. It's about Christ who lives in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. He is my God, my Savior, my King, my Lord. Those words all mean something. I want my colors 
to be clear, I am his. I was lost in prostitution, unwanted by the world, and no one put any value on me. But Christ came for me. He bought me. He restored me, redeemed me, forgave me, and commissioned me. And he asks of me for my loyal love. He is my king. As we understand our new citizenship in Christ, the next part of Peter, actually for the next two chapters, is going to deal with our code of conduct. And our code of conduct is important because a lot of times the code of conduct is misused. And anytime we come to the word and we study the word and we read the word, here's the challenge. The greatest challenge we have is not what we don't know. It's what we think we already know. I myself many times have come to a text and say, I know what that means. This is what that means. And what I'm guilty of often is pulling that text out of its context. The word of God exists as a unit together. So whatever my interpretation in the next several verses that we're going to look at, it must fit with the story of God. It's something that we should be able to see, right? It's going to be illustrated as we look at the Old Testament and the New. So he begins our code of conduct with a challenge for you and I. And that very first challenge is... Beloved, I urge you. There's not a stronger word he could have used there. He's urging us. He's going to describe who we are, sojourners and exiles. But what's the thing he's urging? Abstain from passions of the flesh. Now, if we read Galatians, if we've been in the book of Galatians, we know the the works of the flesh, right? They're in opposition to the fruit of the Spirit. Right? And it's all the things Peter's been telling us to get rid of. Malice, deceit, you guys remember? Envy, he's saying, throw these things off. Wrath, all of that stuff, we are to take, he urge you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. We're going to talk about that in a minute. He wants us to abstain from all passion of the flesh. It's the unbridled impulses that we have. All those things we want to do. Even the things we think should be okay, but for some reason God says it's not okay. And we struggle with, why why would God limit this? Does he just want to stop me from being happy? No. He is my king. my sovereign he's my ultimate what God says I'm supposed to do you remember what Jesus said as he stood before a crowd of people he looked at him and said why do you call me Lord Lord and not do the things I say for for you and I we're, we're it's it's a foreign word to us we had Lord has become a religious term But Lord used in that day was, you're my ultimate. You're the final word, the final authority. That is why you see so often in culture, state and church butting heads. They have two different ultimates. So the Lord is challenging us, abstain from fleshly lust. 1 John 2.16 says, all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. None of these things are from the Father, but of the world. 
So we are to flee those things. The desires of the flesh. My flesh, look, my flesh has gorged itself. I'm an old man. My flesh has ate to its full. It's like a Thanksgiving dinner for my flesh all the time. My flesh, personally, my flesh loves wrath. It loves rage. I don't know why. It's, it just is that thing that boils under the surface all the time. It's, it's always there. And the great challenge for me is to bring that desire into submission to Christ who is my Lord. And he told me to abstain from all that fleshly desire. To just come home and holler at my wife. She ain't done nothing wrong. How many times I hollered at you, hon? Oh, yeah, she's a good wife. She's, she's nice. How many times just because I'm mad? Kick the dog, throw the cat. I don't like cats much. Sorry. And holler at my wife. The Lord wants me to abstain, turn from all of that. And he gives this earnest appeal. It's urgent. Stay away from this because of the environment I live in. Why am I fleeing my, my passions of my flesh? Now, I got mine. You got yours. We, they don't have to be the same. Right? There is that besetting sin the weight and that sin that so easily ensnares us, that we want to flee, that we want to stay away from. Why? Because the environment we live in. We are sojourners and exiles. You, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are a refugee in this world. And the sooner you will accept that, the better you'll be. This place is not my home these rulers are not my king i have a king now i'm a refugee because my king's not sitting on the throne where everyone can see him so i'm going to conduct myself in this world as a sojourner and an exile one who lives alongside but is an outsider not intended to be an insider. It says in Psalm 39, 12, hear my, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Like everyone who ever went before me, I'm a sojourner. I'm a sojourner. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's the hall of faith. What did they all say? We're strangers here. Aliens. Exiles. Ephesians 2.19 says this about our new identity in Christ. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens to God. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. One king. There is one king. I am not a citizen. This is what the scripture tells us about <clears throat> the patriarchs. In Hebrews 11, 9 and 10. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking for a city that had foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham lived his life on earth in tents, understanding that this place is not it yet. I'm looking for the kingdom of God. I am looking for the kingdom of God, an eternal state in which God rules and reigns. So, he lived alongside 
those in this world who had rejected God. He lived alongside them. Desiring peace where peace could be. The point is that this knowledge does not lead to withdrawal. But to taking our standard of behavior, not from the culture in which we live or the world that is that we are strangers to. We don't take our cues from the, the culture, but rather from our home in heaven. How shall I then live? I shall live according to God's holy word so that my life always fits the place I'm going to, not the place I am. I will not be conformed into this world, but transformed by the renewing of my mind to prove what is the good and perfect will of God. This is where our focus is. So we are challenged to resist sinful desire, but in verse 12, he reminds us, of our testimony, and you need to hear what he says. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Please understand that the Gentiles are not your judge of what is honorable. Who's the judge? Who's the king? So we keep our conduct before the Gentiles, living alongside the world that has rejected Christ. We keep our conduct honorable. Listen to what they say. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, is the world speaking against Christians? That will not change. It won't change. You want it to change? Then lead them to Christ that they might be born again. And then it'll change. The world, Jesus said, will hate you. Didn't he say that? He said a, a student is not greater than his teacher. So if the world hates me, Jesus said... It's going to hate you too. Now I want you to understand what's going here. What's going on. He's saying, I want you, God is saying, our king is commanding us to be honorable before the Gentiles. What if they're not honorable? He don't care. What did he tell you to do? Be honorable. According to whose standard? His standard. But the world says I can do. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do the things I say. So he says, they're going to speak to you as an evildoer. But they may see your good deeds and glorify God. When? Don't miss it. On the day of visitation. Now there are some who will say the day of visitation is the day of their salvation. Perhaps, like I said, if they get saved, their attitude toward you will change. But there is only one parallel in the Bible with the day of visitation. It's Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Here's what Isaiah chapter 10, 1 through 4 says. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. To turn aside the needy from justice, rob the poor of my people of their light, or of their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment? That phrase in the Greek, in the Septuagint, is the exact same phrase. What will you do on the day of visitation? What will you do when you stand before the judge? When the unbeliever stands before God, they will glorify God for 
your conduct with them. Because you have been as Christ. They will glorify God on the day of their visitation. In the ruin that will come from afar, to whom will you flee for help? Where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For this, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. I want to read you something about Isaiah 10.4. It says, while visitation by God can mean salvation... In the Isaiah passage, which is the only exact parallel, it indicates a day of judgment. All people will have to confess God's powerful display in his people. That is, give glory to God on that day, even if they had not previously acknowledged his rightness. While good lives will eventually force all to glorify God for what they see in Christians now... Unbelievers see the same facts in a different light, and they slander you as evildoers or criminals. It is often the very abstaining from fleshly desires that causes the unbeliever to hate you so. They were Christians in the past, in history, accused of numerous crimes, practicing murder, incest, Cannibalism in their secret meetings, such as their love feasts, brother and sister, eating the body, drinking the blood. Tacitus, ruler, uh, claimed that they were hated because of their lives. Such slander was common fare of public discourse. When brought to the attention of the authorities, it became the basis for judicial persecution. They killed believers. Not because they were wicked evildoers in their culture. But because they serve another king. Jesus. Peter knows that nothing can be done to confront the rumor mill directly. It is a spiteful slander based on the guilt of those who perpetrate it. But like Jesus, whose words he may echo... Peter argues for a steady course of righteousness that even the pagans will have to approve of in the end. If you think you can live your life in such a way that unbelievers will glorify God by your example, I've never seen it. I've never seen an unbeliever glorify God. I see unbelievers glorify the person that, they, that has done a, something that they esteem to be good. But by what standard are you being judged by an unbeliever? They're, they're judging by the world standard. And if the world standard is in opposition to Christ, what's he going to say about you? What's wrong with you, crazy Christians? Why can't you just do what everybody else is doing? Why can't you just be like us? The beauty of the Christians in Rome, the early church, listen to this. They would praise Rome for order in the society, for the prescription that God gives for a just ruler, right? That he punishes evil and praises good, right? They would say, hey, we're, this is... This is Government is good. It's not a bad thing. But then that same nation would say, look, at, we just need to know that you are willing to pledge allegiance to the state. All states move to the deification of state. All rulerships move. This is the, this is the, prog the progression to the deification of the state. Now, it's easy. It's simple, Christian. All you have to do is say Caesar is Lord. And you are a good citizen of Rome. All you have to do is say Caesar is Lord. There's just one problem for the Christian. 
Jesus is Lord. Why can't you just take a pinch of, in, pinch of incense, throw it on the fire, say, Caesar, Kaiser est curios. It's easy. And one by one, in hundreds and thousands, some estimate millions, Christians chose death before saying, Caesar is Lord. They had Peter's teaching. They had Paul's teaching. They had scriptures as we look at them. And this was the example they have left us. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Should we just assume they all just got it wrong? They should have submitted to the governing authorities and took a pinch of incense and just said the words. What's the big deal? They wouldn't do it. Is Jesus Lord? There is one king. I'm not a citizen of this place. I'm a citizen of heaven. Christ is my king. He sought me, he bought me, he redeemed me, he restored me, and I will, till my last breath, provide my loyal love to him. This is our code of conduct. Well then, Jackie, what are we doing here? Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution so when Abraham was living alongside these other nations was he pecking a fight nope Jacob was he pecking a fight nope in fact they'd go out and dig a well and then Abimelech would come and take the well and then he'd say you can't use this well no more and what he'd, he'd go dig another well all right whatever I'll go dig another well even when they were trying to peck a fight with him for the sake of the Lord be subject to all, you know what this word actually says, human creation. It's being subject to humans. It, it, it does carry the concept, the idea of government. Government is an inanimate object. It's a thing. It's a, it's a philosophy. It's the idea of being subject to one another, following Christ's Example, following the example that he provides for us. Was he alongside? Was he a stranger and a sojourner? These are the examples that we want to follow. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, for what purpose? Listen, you need to know Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2 are prescriptive, not descriptive. Prescriptive means this is how government is supposed to work. This is not always how government works. You know that, right? We look in our world and we're beginning to see it turn. But if you were in communist China, you would recognize that they do not always punish evil and praise good. Yes? And the Lord has a judgment for that. Woe to you who call good evil and evil good. So the prescription, the, the God's purpose of government laid out for us is that they would punish evil and praise good, for this is the will of God. And for us, what should we do? We should live alongside them, obedient to God, desiring to be at peace. For by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, you and I both know the world in rebellion against God is not always going to praise your good deeds because your good deeds aren't necessarily what's ascribed by the world, but what's ascribed by God. What has God 
called you to. Let me give you an example. The Assyrians and the Babylonians were the servant of God to execute wrath and, and punish the evil of the nation of Israel. Both were brought in judgment against the nation of Israel. Both Assyria and Babylon were condemned by their motives. So Jeremiah could argue that one should not resist Babylon, but he never said, be like her. Jeremiah would go door to door while the Babylonian army is outside, and God had declared his judgment. You will be exiles. You are going to the refugee camp. Jerusalem is gone. This was God's judgment. The Lord Jeremiah could go door to door to door and say, God says, live. Why should you die, Israel? Surrender and go in exile. But the command of God in exile was to build, to plant, to marry, to have children, to increase and not to decrease. It was never to become Babylonians. You are refugees. You're not seeking the opportunity to become Babylonians. You are God's chosen people in exile. And you are to increase. You are to seek him. You are to draw near to him. Ask yourself this question. Why does the deified state always declare Christianity a crime? They all do it, every one of them. Russia declared it a crime, except for the church that could be controlled by Russia. It's called the Russian Orthodox Church. It used to be Greek Orthodox. China, what do they do? What's the first thing they do? They put down Christians. Why? Because a Christian will not say Caesar is Lord. They know that. Do we? They know that Christians will, they serve a God. They serve Jesus Christ as king. I want to live in peace with the state. But this place is not my home. And when the state is in opposition to Christ, it is not a choice of who wins. Christ wins if he's my king. I will be obedient to him. Why? Because he is my ultimate authority. For the world, the ultimate authority is state. It's whoever has the gold. It's whoever's in charge. It's whoever makes the rules, right? For the state, that's the ultimate authority. Like, like think about it in our families, right? When our children come to us, and they want to do something, and we say to them, no. And they say, why not? And we say, because I told you so. Now, kids will say, that's a lame answer. No, it's not. Your, your parent is ascribing ultimate authority over you. And by the way, that's God-ordained. Our world is out of balance. In opposition to God's holy word my ultimate authority is christ and i will obey him when the disciples are brought before the sanhedrin who crucified christ and they gave them a command you will no longer use his name they said well of course because we're submitted to the state and whatever the state says we'll do is that what they said what did they say as to whether we should obey you or, or God, you decide. But as for me, I will not stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. And they left the Sanhedrin and started preaching before they got out the door. They desire peace. But they will not submit to the lordship of the state. I desire peace. To be subject to to the authorities. Tyrants understand that Christians believe Jesus is king and there can be no, no battle between. 
you're either, you are either going to uphold the state or Christ. And our nation is moving in that direction rapidly, if you're paying attention. We're rapidly moving in that direction. So what's our responsibility? Look at verse 16. Here's our, how, how are we to respond to this? Okay, we're supposed to be subject. We want a desire to live in peace, but we're not going to abide any, anybody who claims power over Christ or authority over Christ. No state has authority over him. Verse 16 says, live as people who are free. Free. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. It's not so that I can walk around in, my, in the desires of my flesh, so that I can satisfy the desires of my flesh. That's not why he calls me to freedom. He calls me to freedom from sin, to honor those around me. He's going to give us a prescription in a moment to honor those around me in the name of Christ. But not to compromise, not to surrender truth, live as people who are free, not using freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of whom? It did not say live as servants of the state. What did it say? Live as servants of God. By the way, that's a higher authority. I don't mean that to say, well, just do whatever you want. That's not what he says. He says live as servants of God, you do what God says. You do what God's word has declared. What governs our actions? Two things. Love for God. Love for neighbor. That's your motive. Love for God. Love for for neighbor, I want to respond in ways my actions want to be those that are driven by the fact that the scripture declares, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, he is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he calls us not to oppress. He calls us not to rip people off. He calls us to a higher standard than the state. And he wants us to walk therein. Here's the challenge he says, honor who? Everyone. Honor everyone. Love the brethren. Fear God. There's only one he calls to fear. And honor the emperor, the king. So treat the king just like you would treat everyone. Honor everyone. Honor the king. So when the state forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, the state must be resisted. When the state forbids what God commands, or commands what God forbids, it must be resisted. Now I know these days we had a lot of talk about Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, and I'm sure I'll have lots of people at coffee tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock. You're welcome to come. But I want you to understand that we have biblical precedent. The book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 1, verse 15, the king of Egypt, that's the state, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one whose name was Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and they 
See them on the burst stool. If it's a son, you shall kill him. That's the word of the king, right? But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the Hebrew midwives feared God. What did they do? The Hebrew midwives did what? They feared God. What did Peter just say for us to do? Honor everyone. Love the brethren. What was the third one? Fear God. So the Hebrew midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. They have a desire to be at peace with Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt. They want to, they want to live good lives. They want to increase and not to decrease, right? They want to marry and have children and plant gardens and do all those things. But they will not kill their sons. When the state forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, they must be resisted they resisted against a wicked decree now later on they're going to lie to the king about it right the king's going to say what's going on and they lie they're afraid you guys ever lie careful the bible doesn't justify their lie but god honors their decision to fear him to honor god the Bible tells us a righteous man will fall how many times? And he will rise again. So the king said to the Hebrew midwives, why have you done this and let the, the male children live? And they said, because Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. Man, they, they sit down, they're out there working and plop, they have a baby and bloop, they get up and go back to work. I tried to use this on Kathy when she had babies. <laughs> she did not think I was humorous at all. Listen, so listen, verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives. God honored them, but they lied. Yeah, they're failures just like you and me, but they chose to fear God and resist the wicked decree of the king. Daniel chapter 3, uh, you guys all know Rack, Shack, and Benny, Right? Everybody knows Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously, how, do they, how are they going to treat believers? Maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, made a decree that every man hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music will fall down and worship the golden image, and whatever does not fall down and worship will be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And there are those certain Jews whom you have appointed. They were actually in leadership, right? They were part of the council for King Nebuchadnezzar. They were serving alongside Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar made this horrific decree. So Nebuchadnezzar in verse 13, in a furious rage, commanded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought him. And Nebuchadnezzar said, is this true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image I have set up? Will you not bow to the deity of the state? Is that not what they're saying? Will you not bow to the deity of the state? Isn't that, is that the same thing Rome was saying? Is that the same thing China says? You know there are pastors currently serving nine years, a nine-year sentence in China. You know what his crime is? He subverted the power of the state. Well, of course, because the state's not the ultimate authority who is. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to give him a second chance. If you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made, 
then it's good, well and good. But if you do not worship, you will be immediately cast into the fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Do you know Babylon didn't care what God they worshipped? Do you know that? Do you know that Rome didn't care what God you worshipped? There was never a Christian killed for worshipping Jesus. There was a Christians killed because they would not declare Caesar Lord. But they would not declare Caesar Lord because Christ, Jesus, is Lord. That's why. That Babylon don't care. They could worship God. Just bow before my altar. Bow before the deification of the state. Bow before the reality that state is the ultimate authority. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in a secular society where, where we have several spheres of influence. And we think that all those spheres are separated. We have the sphere of family. We have the sphere of work. We have the sphere of the state. But the lordship of Christ is over all. All of it. When you hear the music bow, so they play the music. I love what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say. Look, O Nebuchadnezzar, they want to dwell in peace alongside. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we don't bow. There is one king, one ultimate authority, and it is to him we bow. That's it. There is one ultimate authority. And listen, even if you throw us in a fiery furnace, he will deliver us out of your hand. You can kill us, but that's it. That's what Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and the, and the king's filled with rage and throws them in the fire. But that wasn't the end of the story, was it? Daniel chapter 6. When Daniel heard news of the document that had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to his God as he had done previously. What was the decree by the king? The decree by the king was you are not allowed to pray to any other deity but the king. You're not to seek help from anywhere else. The only help you need is from the state. No? Daniel, thou shalt not pray. So Daniel, being a good Christian who wanted to be submissive to the state, closed his curtains and prayed privately where no one could see. You just read it with me. Is that what Daniel did? He opened his windows. He went before the same window publicly where people saw him pray every day. And he prayed. And where to get him? In the lion's den. When the state forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, the state must be resisted. So what's our attitude in all this? Our attitude is to honor everyone. Not to be disrespectful, not to be rude, not to be filled with malice or hatred or deceit or maliciousness. Not, that's not how we've learned Christ, is it? But it doesn't mean that we're a doormat. We still are obeying our king. Honor everyone. Every human being deserves honor. He makes no distinctions from noble to slave, for all human beings are created in the image of God. Our attitude is to be one where we honor all. Secondly, we're to love one another, the brethren, the church, the bride of Christ. Peter specifically points out the love for our fellow Christians. Third, 
we are to reverence and fear God. That's why we obey him rather than men. We will obey God first. A desire to live in peace alongside. But I will not shame the Lord who bought me. Because he offends you. I will serve in my community my king. He's my king. I will honor him, reverence him, and fear him. The challenge from the state in the time when this was written was to give reverence and fear to Caesar. But Peter says, no reverence and fear to Caesar, reverence and fear to God. What's my fourth attitude? Honor the king. To give appropriate honor, the king is to be prayed for and honored. The emperor is human, and he never receives the blanket approval or the title of ultimate authority. There is one ultimate authority. Don't confuse ultimates. There is one king. He is my and the only king forever. When we talk about submission to the state and we can have all of our arguments about what is obedient to God and what is not obedient to God, we need to understand that the ultimate question that the state is asking is who is the ultimate authority. The state would require you to live in different spheres. At home, do what you want. In your family, do what you want. In church, do what you want. Where did Christ preach? He preached on the public square. Where did Paul preach? He preached in a public square. When we see that today, most of us, or many of us, are offended by it. Oh, what are you doing out here? You're, you're, you're making a, a bunch of noise. And What are you doing? Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of every nation. There's one king that we are to obey and that we're to follow and that we're to honor and that we're to honor all people. This is not a call to be some kind of rude, obnoxious jerk. But the judgment of rude, obnoxious jerk is God. Not the people offended by his word or his truth or his call to all men everywhere to repent and believe. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. More code of conduct to come. I know I didn't finish chapter 2, but we'll add that to chapter 3. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word, God. And I pray, Lord, that we could come to understand what it is to obey you. For so much time in my life, I would, I would go to bear witness, to share my faith in Christ with someone, but I was so worried I would offend them. I would, I w- it would bother them. It would bother what I had to say. It would, it would uh, make them uncomfortable. So I took Jesus and I, I stuck him on a shelf and I said, Lord, you stay here and I'll come get you on Sunday. Lord, you stay here and I'll grab you on Wednesday or when I go to Bible studies, but the rest of the time, I'm going to leave you here. But as I grew to understand 
the incredible links that my God went to for me. Do you know that the Lord declares, Jackie, I'm not ashamed of you. Are you ashamed of me? Are you ashamed to declare the ultimate authority of your Savior? I know Peter understood what this was. Peter stood at a fire and the state was rising up against and all the things he thought was going on was all disappearing in an evening. And there, the God of the universe who had the power to speak the word and just all those soldiers would disappear and Pilate would be gone. He could set up his throne and he could rule as king. He had all the power to do all those things. But he did none of it. He submitted himself to their judgment, living a life in obedience to God the Father. And Philippians tells us, through the obedience of Christ, he was given the name that is above every other name. He submitted himself to God, not to Pilate. He submitted himself to the Father, not to the Jewish Sanhedrin. He submitted himself to the Lord God Almighty. We're going to read it in the next few verses. He trusted his father, he placed himself in his hands and he let the world do what she would do. And he looked back at Peter. Peter who had walked with him all that time. Peter who had been bold to proclaim his willingness to stand when no one else would stand. He looked back at Peter just as the servant girl said to him for the third time. Are you sure you're not one of his disciples? Gospel of Luke says that he cursed at her. And he said, I don't know the man. And Luke says, at that moment, the eyes of Peter and the eyes of Christ met. Peter ran and wept bitterly. When Jesus rose from the dead, he came to Peter and he brought him back in. But now Peter's not so bold. Now Peter's not so sure in his own strength. And now Peter, he says, Lord, I more than anything, Lord, I want to be faithful and loyal to you. And Jesus told him, you will be. One day, men are going to lead you to the place you don't want to go. And they're going to stretch out your arms. The scripture says Jesus spoke this about the way Peter would die that would glorify God glorified God because it was an opportunity for Peter to show what was in his heart, not failing to stand, but standing therefore in the power of his spirit, submitted to God. Peter didn't go to war. Peter didn't do a lot of things. Peter desired to live at peace. I'm sure he wanted families and kids and but the day came when the state would not allow it unless he denied his Lord that bought him. God, may we see 
the writing on the wall. May we, like Peter, understand you are my king and I will obey you first and second. And I will do it in a way that honors all, that loves the brethren, that fears God and will honor the king I think it's funny, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they call King Nebuchadnezzar, they see, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, live forever, which was a greeting. It was not, they're not rude to the king. They honored him, but they would not obey him. Lord God, give us wisdom to be obedient to your word, to walk in the days we find ourselves in, to bring glory and honor to you first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.